Last week, we made our way from verses 4 through 12, and the, it, was a, it was one of those really kind of practical messages. It was six things that the Bible tells us to do if we want to avoid quarreling and fighting. Um, and I may have inadvertently limited the application of, uh, of that to the church, but it really, I mean, these things work everywhere. Number in your marriage with your kids, uh, if you are a kid with your siblings, if you're an adult with your siblings, um, here they are. Ask God for grace. That's number one. Right? Asking God for grace implies that you understand who and what you are and who and what God is. So you're, you're appealing to him as someone who is in need of something from the one who can provide. Number two, submit to God, which doesn't mean whatever's happening, you have to be happy about it. It means that you do not sin in order to change your circumstances. That as you're seeking to change your circumstances, you do, do so yielded to the providence and plan of God. Number three, resist the devil and he will flee. Uh, <clears throat> don't slander people in order to make yourself look or feel better. It doesn't work. And the reason that I think this is devil resisting is because the word from which we get devil that James wrote, diabolo, is usually translated slanderer. Resist the slanderer and he will uh, flee means resist being like him, right? I mean, what's the slanderer want you to do? Say horrible things about one another. By the way, I did not swear at any point during my message last week. This just came to me. Uh, my wife said, I'm pretty sure you said a word that starts with S in your sermon. And I, I'm like, oh, there's no way. There's just no way. And so I had to go back and endure that message again. And it was shtick. That was the word that I said. God sees through my shtick. Okay? Uh, anyway. Four. It's since been edited, so you can't prove. Number four was draw near to God and he will draw near to you, which, I mean, it almost needs no explanation. But I explained it last week. You go back and listen to that if you want to. Number five. Be miserable, mourn, and weep not as a general mode of operation throughout your life, but there are certainly times when it's called for. And what James, I think, is communicating there is bravado won't cover your sin, but a broken heart entreating God for forgiveness will bring Jesus to cover your sin. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Uh, number six, Stop judging one another. Man, I flew over this, and some of you are probably like, he'll deal with that more next week. Nope, I'm not going to. Uh, I just said, you can't receive mercy and then not give mercy. And when you're being hostile in your judgments of other people, you need to bear in mind you just left the throne room of grace and received mercy and kindness from God. So whatever you're going to dole out to those of us in your orbit, should resemble what you've received from the creator of all the universe. Don't judge one another. 
Today, we're going to wrap up chapter 4, <clears throat> beginning in verse 13. So, James 4, 13, Come now, you who say, oh, Today <laughs> or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it's sin. One Tuesday morning in late summer... 28-year-old Amy Jarrett left her home in Rhode Island and headed for work in Boston. Amy was a graduate of Mount St. Charles Academy in Rhode Island and uh, graduated from Villanova University. She was an avid theater member. Uh, she was in the plays Cheaper by the Dozen, Man of La Mancha, and starred as Anne Frank in the New England Association presentation of The Diary of Anne Frank. Amy was a math tutor and volunteer for the Northern Rhode Island chapter of an association for mentally handicapped people. On top of that, she volunteered at the Mount St. Francis Nursing Home. Pretty wonderful human being, right? Unless you're not into theater. Working out of Boston fit her plans and aspirations, but it's hard to see how her chosen profession fit her plans and aspirations since she had a degree in marketing. In fact, some of her family speculate that the main reason why Amy was not employed by an advertising agency was because she wanted the resources to divide her time between Philadelphia where her longtime boyfriend Kyle lived, and Rhode Island, where she lived with her father and brothers. Amy left for work around 6 in the morning, and she was well into her day by 9.03 a.m., at which point many of us probably saw her die when United Flight 175 slammed into the southern of the two World Trade Center towers. Peter Hansen, sitting in seat 30E of that same plane, called his father three minutes before the plane collided with the tower. He was traveling with his wife, Sue, and their two-year-old daughter, Christine, headed for Los Angeles. And his father recounts the words that Peter said. It's getting bad, Dad. A stewardess was stabbed. They seem to have knives and mace. They said they have a bomb. It's getting very bad on the plane. Passengers are throwing up and getting sick. The plane is making jerky movements. I don't think the pilot's flying the plane. I think we're going down. I think they intend to go to Chicago or someplace and fly into a building. Don't worry, Dad. If it happens, it'll be very fast. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Amy was not the only flight attendant on board United 175. Robert Fangman... Amy King, Catherine Labor, Alfred Marchand, Michael Taro, and Alicia Titus were working that day as well. But here's what I think. I think none of the staff or passengers in the air on any airliner 
on September 11th, 2001, had given any thought to the possibility that the events which unfolded might occur, nor did any of us. And I'm aware of the low-hanging nature of this illustration, right? It's easy fruit, but sometimes the easiest example is the best example. And the point that the Bible is making to us, not as stridently as I just did, is that we do not know what tomorrow will bring. We don't even know what today will bring. Two points then for verses 13 and 14. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Point one. Remember, bring to mind, uh, recall often, What's coming next is a mystery. Remember that. What's coming next is a mystery. You have to remind yourself of that. Now, the human brain, for those of you who don't know, is constantly making predictions, predicting outcomes, like trying to fill in the gaps and making assumptions. During conversations, I'm going to blow your mind. Some of you are like, of course, we knew that already. Well, I didn't until this past year. During conversations, when reading books, and when watching television or movies, the brain is about the business of continually trying to guess what word is coming next. Like the autocomplete function on your phone and computer, the brain is always predicting what will be said rather than just waiting to find out. Did you know that? For example, one of my favorite sandwiches is the bacon, lettuce, and yeah. if I had said cucumber, you would have been a little bit irritated because you knew what was coming next. Famously, in the movie Frozen, when Anna meets Prince Hans and they break into a spontaneous love song, they sing a line which goes, it's so crazy how we finish each other's sandwiches. And it bothers you the first time you see it because it's supposed to be sentences. But the sly dogs at Disney were portraying something to the audience early on in that movie which wouldn't become clear until later, which was these two were not compatible at all. I apologize for referencing that movie and that song. One of the consequences of this prediction machine going on in our minds is that sometimes we react emotionally to what we expected someone to communicate, even while they are forced to respond verbally and physically only to what was actually communicated by us, especially if we're a woman. A sort of emotional disjointedness is created and in some cases, we find ourselves accused of saying or meaning things which we did not say, nor did we mean. Or we find ourselves feeling towards someone else based on what we expected them to say or mean, rather than what they actually said or meant. This is because not only do our brains predict, but we're eminently confident in those predictions. Similarly, 
Researchers at Oxford University published a study in the journal Neuron that they may have figured out which part of the brain people use in order to have an advanced sense of how successful they might be at a given task. They discovered that a specific area of the anterior lateral prefrontal cortex was critical for these evaluations. And when they disrupted this part of the brain, the accuracy of estimation was decreased when people were evaluating future chances of success. As a result, when they put this magnetic interference pulse in the prefrontal cortex, folks made riskier decisions. That's interesting, isn't it? Apparently not if you're up here in this row. There were two yawns at once. I know from personal experience that if you are a boy standing on a rock at the edge of a creek and you see a fallen log or tree within jumping distance, right? your brain involuntarily if you're a boy, begins to decide what the odds are of landing that jump. Whether you had any intention of crossing the creek is irrelevant. Perhaps this is true of girls as well. I don't know. I didn't pull any. Also, this is anecdotal. But any evaluation of a jump, which results in you concluding that you would be successful, leads to an involuntary jumping to prove that you would be, regardless of whether you had any reason to cross the creek. We all have a remarkable need to confirm what our predictive powers come up with. Another way the brain works to predict is by incorporating memory into what's actually happening. So there's this kind of weaving together of what you've experienced in the past with what you're observing in the future. If you've ever had the displeasure of seeing a video of the catcher's view of a pitcher throwing a baseball from the mound toward you, the camera, the batter swinging hard at the ball and just grazing the underside of it so that the ball flies even faster right at the camera, then you've also had the experience of dropping your phone in your lap, jerking back in your seat, even though you were in absolutely no danger of being hit by a baseball or something similar because your brain remembers what it's like to get hit in the face because of some previous exper experience, causes your body to react involuntarily to a completely imaginary scenario. So perhaps we should be lenient with ourselves for constantly trying to predict the future. We're kind of designed to do it, in a sense. We should also learn to be humble about what we come up with, amen? Indeed, rigorously anticipating worst-case scenarios will lead you into a kind of permanent state of anxiety that requires therapy. Similarly, rigorously predicting best-case scenarios will lead you into an anger problem that requires therapy. We just have to learn not to think so highly of what we predict is going to happen. We do not know what our lives will be like tomorrow. That's point one. We might, like Amy Jarrett, and 2,976 other people on September 11th, 2001 have a pretty good idea of what to expect from any given day and then discover that that day is our last. Which brings us to point two. 
Life is breathtakingly short. The Word of God likens our lifespan to grass in a field, Isaiah 40, 6 and 7, a leaf before the wind, Job 13, a shadow, Job 14. My days are swifter than a runner. They fly away. They skim past like boats of papyrus. They fly like eagles descending on their prey, Job said. Aeschylus, the ancient Greek tragedian, said a man's life is the shadow of smoke. Pindar, a Greek poet, wrote, Creatures of a day, what is anyone? What is anyone not? A dream of a shadow is our mortal being. But when there comes to men a gleam of splendor given of heaven, then rests on them a light of glory, and blessed are their days. A dream of shadow. That's the span of a person's life. Well, James calls it a vapor, or a mist, or a fog. Most of us, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, most of us, by the time we reach the age of 30, would say something like this. My days are long, but my years are short. You feel that in your soul. You kind of might develop this anxiety uh, uh, because of the dreams unrealized If not sanctified by the expectation of a life to come, this will lead us to desperate attempts to regain or cling to our youthfulness. You don't perform, uh, well, or have performed on you the number of plastic surgeries that some, I'm not even going to name this, like the older celebrities where it's just like, because you've got a good sense of your impermanence. You think you're going to live forever. That's why you want to look like you're still 20 when you're 70. It's tragic. Indeed, I think we realize more and more how remarkable it is that we've survived this long as our friends and loved ones begin to fall to the grave with ever-increasing regularity. Vapor or fog doesn't even last the day. Brothers and sisters, we are here in the morning and we are gone in the morning. Unless you're like in London, I guess. The fog lasts through the day there. But from my experience, it's gone by 10, 11 o'clock. Given a long enough life, at some point, we stop and take inventory, right? If you're, I don't know what age it happens. I know for me it was about 38 because I'm classic. Like I like to do things in the classic way, involuntarily. But I hit my middle age crisis at about 38. And you stop and you take inventory and you realize you don't have as much time as you thought you did. Maybe you do it again when you're 50. I don't know yet. Maybe you do it again when you're 60. I don't know yet. 70? Maybe you do it every three days. I don't know. Being that we don't know what tomorrow holds, we might have even less time than we expect. Why would the Bible tell us to mark this truth? Isn't it a bit morbid and depressing? Depends. Luke 12, 13. 
Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So this is an adult. Right? Trying to get Jesus to arbitrate a disagreement about an inheritance. Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It seems, and we'll see this more clearly when we get into James chapter 5, but it seems James is taking up Jesus' theme from Luke 12. What made the rich man a fool? What was it that earned him that moniker? Well, he gave no thought to his eternal soul. That makes you a fool. Not thinking about your soul standing in judgment before God makes you a fool. Well, what does it look like to not give thought to your eternal soul? You assume things will always go on as they have up to that point. That's what it looks like. You go to bed having not spent any time with God for some number of days, planning on doing it the next day. That's what it looks like. That's foolishness. He never stopped to consider who gave him the breath of his life. He presumed to live. Now, everyone in the room is equally guilty of this. All of us presume to live. We got in multi-thousand pound rolling missiles this morning and drove probably at speeds exceeding 45 miles an hour to get to church. All it takes is some mechanical failure that decreases your ability to stop that thing for your life to be changed dramatically or ended abruptly, right? How many of you stopped as you started the car and said, Lord, please help this car work correctly this morning on my way to church. And if you did, good for you. I don't think any of us did, and nor am I advocating that you must do that. I'm just trying to illustrate that we're not real cognizant of these truths. Life is breathtakingly short. How does one be rich toward God? Right, so question one was, what made the rich man a fool? Question two is, how does one be rich toward God? Because in the end of Luke 12, 13 through 21, Jesus said, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
Um, this is not about to be a sermon about offerings. Relax. You be rich. You exist richly toward God by using the time you are given to bring glory to him rather than only to yourself. Listen, the gospel is good news because it pierces dark places. You've heard me say this before. The gospel's good news because it invades dark places. You're going to die. That's a dark place. That's not something we really want to spend a lot of time thinking about. I'm going to make it worse. You're going to die, and it might be today or it might be tomorrow. That's bad news. That's difficult for a human being to bear the heaviness of. But it's also the result of our sin. We contribute to our own death from the moment we are able to make any kind of decision and make it for ourselves, for our glory, in the pursuit of our magnification. The promise of eternal life is found in no one other than Jesus Christ. If you never give a thought to the reality that you aren't going to live forever, you will never give a thought to the validity of the following statement. Listen to this, please. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day upon which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's Acts 17, 24 through 31. So the correct perspective from verse 15 in James 4 is, Indeed, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Constantly staying aware of our impermanence, our transientness, will keep us from drifting into the anxiousness and anger which accompanies having our plans disrupted. Let me say that again. Because it was so smart, you probably missed it. I don't really think that. But it is worth saying again. <laughs> Keeping in mind 
staying aware of, being cognizant of how mortal we are, how likely we are to die at any moment. Staying aware of that reality will work to keep you from drifting into the anxiousness and anger which accompany having your plans disrupted by the providence of God. Why are you angry? Because you thought things were going to be one way and they are another way instead. 100% of the time, that's why you're angry. Why are you anxious? Because you are uncertain that things are going to be the way that you hoped. 100% of the time. So how does being aware that you are impermanent, transient, and mortal crucify anxiousness and anger? Well, Lord willing, maybe the most beautifully succinct mantra a Christian can invoke. When we append this to our statements about the future, about tomorrow, we remind ourselves of two truths. Truth number one, we don't know what tomorrow holds. Truth number two, life is breathtakingly short. When I say, Lord willing, this will happen, I'm reminding myself and those who hear me of that truth, of both of those truths. The Bible nowhere prohibits making plans. Come on, think about it. One of the heroes of the faith, Joseph gets word from a pagan king through a dream that there's going to be a famine that's going to last seven years. And what does he do? He starts accumulating grain. And he's praised for it. Paul openly writes about his intentions to visit churches in his epistles to the Romans and the Corinthians. Luke writes of their plans being foiled a few times in Acts. Making plans is not sinful or even unadvisable. Making assumptions may not even be sinful, but man, oh man, does it lead to some heartache. Right? As it is, verse 16, James 4, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. I almost deleted all of this from my notes, but I, I think I'm not alone. And I think you'll hear my heart while I'm explaining, okay? We have to take some etymological liberties in order to make this verse make clear sense because it's extremely vague in the original language. The ESV gives it to us, I mean, pretty literally, because James uses three different words which all more or less mean the same thing. Boast, arrogance, boasting. That's three different words in the Greek that all translate to roughly the same thing. The result is a sentence which almost doesn't even communicate anything other than being boastful is evil, which we already knew and he could have just said. So I think there's more to it than that. Let me illustrate the need that I'm referencing. Imagine that it's the year 4023. You float from your kitchen to your living room because humans discovered 100 years ago vitamins on one of the moons of Jupiter that defeat gravity, so nobody walks anymore. You open the library and plant it in your brain's neural network at birth, which obtains and contains all of the books ever written. You select a book 
from 1993. Start reading it. You come across a line where one character says fraggle wrap to another character. Fraggle wrap, of course, is the prefix to fraggle wrap monta mouth, which in our modern 4023 language is another way of saying mental health in the fields which relate to it. You're left wondering, is this character inviting someone to a mental examination, calling the other person a mental case, or expressing that they're concerned about the character's mental soundness? Well, since it's 4023 and nobody says fraggle wrap, you have no idea. So you look it up. The original word was psych, which has been translated to our modern 4023 uh, language as fraggle wrap. Commentators on the popular language of 1993, sometimes called Engellandish, but usually just called the language of the Dark Ages, do not agree on the meaning of the word psych. Some believe it was a mystical invocation used to cast spells on enemies. Some believe it was a racial epitaph. Others suggest it was slang and that someone would exclaim it when they had deceived someone else. (laughs) This is a bit what it's like studying New Testament Greek on the internet. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. You can see how we might use the context and the topics which James has been covering to come up with something better than all of that, though, right? Let's look at our verse again. 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Let's just say it a different way. You brag in your bragging and bragging is wrong. No. You're arrogant about your arrogance and all such arrogance is evil. I find that pretty unhelpful and nonsensical. Who's with me? Okay. It seems to me that we're missing something cultural and some context which would have made this line make more sense to us 2,000 years ago when it was written. So I'm going to give you three very good options to choose from. And I don't care which one you choose. I'm good with all three. First, You are bragging about your own plans with no consideration for the sovereignty of God, and this is evil. Two, you are bragging about your arrogantly contrived schemes. All such bragging is evil. Three, you are proclaiming your plans for the future, arrogantly assuming that you will live long enough to see them happen, and this is not right. That's the idea James is obviously communicating. Ignoring the sovereignty of God is equivalent to saying you are sovereign. Not recognizing, Lord willing, I'll finish this sermon. Some of you are like, Lord willing, it'll be quick. Lord willing, I will spend some time praying with all of you in a few minutes. Lord willing, we'll sing another song. Like, You don't have to turn it into some kind of a spell that you cast before you talk about what you're hoping will happen. But if it helps you bear in mind that you're not ultimately the one in charge, then it might steer you out of a lot of heartache. God is not opposed to us making plans for the future, but don't expect him to rearrange his providence to accommodate your plans. 
The realization that everything depends on the Lord's plans brings such peace during difficult times. Doesn't it? This is all part of the will of God. He's going to be glorified. It brings peace during the difficult times, and I would even say it augments the joy of the good times. God wants me to feel this joy right now. I look around school, at work, and at the store. We're all just going to live forever. People plan accordingly. Sock away money for retirement, buy a boat. Who cares about church? Who cares about the Bible? Who cares about Jesus? We'll live forever. Verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it's sin. Well, this message has gone on long enough, hasn't it? Allow me to quickly review and close. First, while we anticipate what today and tomorrow hold, we need to bring to the forefront of our minds this truth. We do not know what today and tomorrow will hold. Amen? Two, life is so brief, so fragile, And so fleeting, we must learn to make the most of our time to glorify God, for ultimately we are on our way to meet him. Third, recognize that God is sovereign, his plans determine the future, and yield yourself to his will, because it's a good will. Fourth, Don't boast in your plans, for this is a sure sign that you're attached to them and whatever success and glory those plans might bring you. Fifth, what will you do? Are you going to live forever? Is that your plan? I mean, if you're 16, of course that's your plan. Not if you don't believe in Jesus. Not if you don't repent. Not if you don't turn away from sin. You may not have tomorrow. You may not finish today. The right thing to do for all of us, regardless of how much we think we're nailing this whole Lord willing concept, the right thing for all of us to do is repent and believe. To him who knows what the right thing is and does not do it, to him it is sin. So if the outcome of this study of God's word is not our repentance and faith, listen, if the outcome of this time in God's word is not our repentance and faith, we are sinning. It's that simple. So, let's pray.